everyone and welcome to the second installment of Economics for Workers, a video presentation series held by the Communist Party of Ireland and Socialist Voice. Tonight we have with us Michael Roberts, uh, this, the economic historian. He's the author of uh, The Long Depression. He blogs at The Next Recession at, at WordPress and was an economist at the City of London for 40 years. So uh, Michael, uh, thanks for coming on tonight. Well, thank you for having me, Eugene, and for uh, CPI having me. It's uh, an honour to participate, and I hope that we have a good discussion about what's going on in the world, the economy at the moment, and in relation to COVID. Okay, so, Michael, we'll, we'll get straight into it, I suppose. Um, you would be of the opinion that the current economic crisis that, that the world is facing uh, can be put down to, to the Marxist concept of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, that it's not something that has been caused by COVID-19, but rather it's something that has been dramatically highlighted by it. Could you, could you expand on that for us, please? Yeah, I'll, I'll be showing you a few graphs shortly, Eugene, which cover that aspect of things. But um, the main point to make here is that uh, capitalism has regular and recurring crises by what do we mean by crises? We mean slumps in production, investment, employment, incomes, and therefore people's spending power on a regular and recurring basis. Every eight to 10 years, there are these sorts of slumps in, across the world, and particularly in the major uh, economies, uh, so-called West, the capitalist economies. So the world economy does not progress upwards, improving our prosperity and li livelihoods and employment. Uh, in fact, it moves in booms and slumps, in bumps and drops. And that cycle of boom and slump has to be explained. Uh, modern mainstream econ economics either ignores it and says that these slumps are sort of by chance or through accident or through some specific uh, thing that can be put right. They do not see anything endemic, anything uh, permanently involved in this process of boom and slump. And the argument of uh, Marx and Engels going way back and subsequently other uh, followers of Marx economics would argue, yes, there is something inherently contradictory in capitalism. It's caused by the fact, primarily, it's not the only factor, but it's the main factor, that over a period of time, there's a tendency for the profitability of capital uh, uh, itself to fall. So as capitalists expand and compete and try to increase production by investing more, uh, they tend to reduce the amount of uh, value that they're getting out of exploiting workers in relative to the amount that they're spending on uh, machinery and the workers themselves. And there's a profitability begins to fall. And when that falls, it reaches a point where capitalists turn the taps off, stop investing, stop employing more people, in fact, reverse that process, and you get a slump. And it takes some time before that slump is unwound by reducing the amount of the workforce, by closing down inefficient companies, and, and the new and more access, accessible companies then take fill up the space and we start the whole process again. So it's a process of cycle, of boom, and then slump, caused by the changes in profitability that are going on. That's, that's the essence of the argument for a theory of crisis to explain why it's regular and recurring and not just by chance. 
And what would you see as the, the main shifts in the, in the global capitalist economy in, in the so-called neoliberal era? The main what, sorry, Gucci? The main uh, economic shifts. Well, um, what we've seen in the period since, um, well, it depends how far back you go, but let's just take the last uh, 10 years. I think there are two, some big shifts. We had a big, humongous slump called the Great Recession now in 2008-9, which affected the majority of the world's economies with one or two exceptions. And that meant that it created a condition where it didn't seem that capitalism could get out of that uh, slump in a normal way and proceed to grow again, at least for a few more years. We entered a very depressed period for capitalism. Output, uh, the national output of all these economies grew at a much lower rate than it did before the Great Recession. Investment was much lower. Uh, Employment, although it filled up, did not boost wages at all. Inflation stayed low. This was a very depressed environment. And that meant that um, we didn't really able to deal with all the issues facing people around the world in terms of poverty, in terms of climate change, in terms of uh, inequalities, because the uh, capitalist economies, even if they wanted to, governments were not able to do so because the economy was so weak. So, and it also meant that we ended what used to exist before that, which was a massive expansion of global trade and investment around the world, as the big multinationals expanded across the world into different parts of the world, uh, the so-called third world and so on, to exploit workers more and to improve their profits overseas. With the Great Recession, that process has really ground to halt. World trade has dropped away. Uh, the flows of the capital have slowed down. So what used to be called globalization has now uh, ceased to operate. So that's increased intense rivalry now between the various blocks in the, in the world, between America and Europe, between Europe and America and Asia. And in particular, of course, as I hope we will discuss a bit more, the big new rivalry between the rising economic power of China and the relatively declining economic uh, power of the United States, which is setting the scene now, and that's the big shift, setting the scene to a major confrontation, both in terms of economics and possibly in politics, but also possibly militarily over the next decade or so. How do you see mainstream uh, academic economics, what they call the the so-called dismal science? Of course, one of the things that mainstream uh, economics in in universities and so on, one of the things they completely failed at was to predict or even to explain the 2008 and 2009 crisis. How how do you see them uh, responding to this one? Well, they've responded more or less in the same way. Uh, The Great Recession uh, was not predicted or forecast by the mainstream economics uh, circles. They, in contrast to the original classical economists of of, uh, capitalist economy when it began back in the early 19th century, as you say, they considered it, it was called a dismal science because they're always predicting a disaster. The modern mainstream economics are always predicting success. And in their view, capitalism was doing fine, coming up to the Great Recession. And so it was like a a bolt out of the blue that there was this massive crash in the financial sector, 
uh, caused by the massive crash in the housing market in the United States, which spread across the world. And this crash led to a widespread slump in production and investment. There was no prediction of that and no real explanation of that, apart from saying it was reckless behavior upon, on the part of banks and all we have to do is regulate them better, or the, there was uh, mistakes made between imbalances between different uh, economies, but they didn't really have any explanation. When the leaders of uh, economics in the United States and other places were asked, they just said, well, it was just a chance in a million, it's not gonna happen again, we're gonna ensure the banks are stronger and so on. But of course, uh, as I would argue, that it was perfectly predictable. Uh, and some of us did predict that it would happen because of these recurring and regular slumps that capitalism has, has and will have. Um, so again, when COVID came along, um, the argument is, well, it's like an asteroid coming out of the sky. It's a shock, it's a one in a million, these, but as I would hope to explain if we've got time, these pandemics were not chance events. Pandemics have been, are being generated precisely through the role of capitalism's operation uh, in, throughout the world globally in expanding its uh, productive forces into areas which they haven't been before through um, fossil fuel exploration, through mineral logging, uh, logging and so on, and also um, industrialization and urbanization uncontrolled not caring for the environment, created the conditions where um, human beings have become into contact with these very dangerous pathogens which existed for thousands of years in wild animals in remote parts. And now we're, we're having it coming into the uh, human, human system itself and beginning to cause these regular and different uh, pandemics that we've had before. This is a product of capitalism, not a bolt out of the blue. It uh, kind of reminds me of uh, back in 2008, 2009, when you saw those news reports talking about how uh, sales of Marx's Das Capital had uh, skyrocketed. Uh, I suppose there's a reason for that. Um, well, that could be a reason. I mean, it's, uh, I'm sure your uh, viewers will be aware that Marx's Capital, particularly uh, the early part of Marx's Capital, is not an easy thing to read. Um, um, and if people are making an effort, it shows that they want to understand what's going on with global capitalism and trying to understand the nature of its contradictions. I would recommend them perhaps to read uh, uh, Value, Price and Profit by Marx, which is a bit of an easier book to start with so that they can grasp the basic ideas. Or even uh, uh, Frederick Engels' uh, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific to get a grasp of the way Marxists see the uh, contradictions in capitalism and then they can come back to capital itself. And one of the things you talk about in your book, The Long Depression, you talk about how this current depression is the third one, that the previous one, of course, the Great Depression, 1921, you also talked about the Long Depression in the, the second half of the 19th century. Could you talk about what, um, I suppose, are the unique features of, of all three and also what, what they have in common with each other? Yeah. Well, in the early part of the book, The Long Depression, as you can see, uh, to my left on your screen here, um, I argue that uh, there are periods in capitalism we've seen now where, as I argued before, you, you have the boom and slump. Normally, the traditional recession is you have this big slump, and then once there's a cleansing going on, people are made unemployed, companies are uh, liquidated, then there's the second half comes up, 
and there is a recovery. So you get a V shape. So the slump takes the, and the recovery takes the form of a V shape. But there are periods, it seems, under capitalism where that V shape doesn't apply, where um, the recovery is so weak that you end up on a completely different trajectory than you had before. So say before uh, capitalism, the, the capitalism had this crisis, it was growing at 4% a year for just using uh, a growth of national output. It goes down, it go, perhaps falls 4%, but it doesn't go back up 4% and start again at 4% each year. It goes up a little and then only grows at 2%. So you have a depressionary period. And in the book, I argue that the, there were uh, there are first depression that we had like that was after 1873 to about the 1890s in most of the major economies, capitalist economies, there weren't many then. So uh, those ones had this depressed period. It was called a depression at the time. And that meant that we continued with high unemployment, uh, deflation, uh, generally a depressed environment before eventually uh, recovery took place. And of course, we have in the 20th century, the Great Depression, which began with the stock market crash in 1929. And then particularly in the United States, a huge fall in output and investment, massive increase in unemployment, and other countries too, and a very, very difficult period to come out of that. In fact, only the launch of the Second World War led to an expansion of uh, investment uh, into military activity and the employment of workers in into uniform in a, in a worldwide war that ended that particular depression. So I argue in the book that we actually came into a new, similar sort of depression after 2007, when profitability fell so low, we had the Great Recession, it couldn't recover. We've been in a depressionary period for the last 10 years. And this COVID creates the, may create the conditions where there could be a recovery by losing so many jobs and so many companies, but it could also just add another leg to the depression like in the late 19th century. And uh, looking back at it, one of the things we can say about capitalism, how, how it solves crises is by, uh, I suppose, some of the worst things known to man. Uh, if you look at the long depression and the uh, result of that was the scramble for Africa, the carve up of the world leading to World War One. Great Depression, of course, leading to the rise of fascism in World War II. And it does present a very serious question. If this is a current uh, depression, then uh, the left and the, the political working class forces have an awful lot of, uh, of work cut out for us. Um, where do you see the trajectory of capitalism as it stands now? Well, um, there two options, this particular slump that we're having could be so severe that it could have what one uh, Austrian economist called creative destruction of capitalism. Otherwise it would destroy all the weak sectors of the capitalist economy and allow the big, uh, more successful and more efficient companies to take over the space, boost their profitability and start expanding again. Uh, during that period of transition, of course, Millions of people are going to be unemployed before they get re-employed, but perhaps that will create, as it were, the conditions in these in this fire and these ashes for a phoenix to arrive and capitalism to have some sort of recovery over the next 10 years, which will boost employment and perhaps even strengthen uh, the labor movement so that it can conduct more, more significant battles on its behalf. That's one option. The other one, as I was just suggesting, that's so uh, weak 
uh, our, the capitalist system at the moment. And so uh, boosted up by huge amounts of money being and credit being handed to them, that actually we continue with another leg of very low growth investment, low employment, another, say, 10 years of depression like we had in the 19th century. I'm not quite sure which way it's going to go. I think the latter one is more likely, but I can't be certain. So what I would say is, if that's what's going to happen, we're entering a period then where it's going to be much more intense rivalry between the major imperialist powers over getting a share of a cake that's not growing very much. Um, so the ability to exploit workers and to get a share of the profits around the world is going to increase tensions both on trade and on technology wars, as we're already seeing, in the case between China and the US, and possibly in some sort of uh, military um, conflict, at least at a regional level as we progress over the next uh, decade or so. But that's not a great environment for the labor movement, is it? And the 1930s worked, uh, the 1880s worked. It was only when there was a bit of a recovery that labor movement got the position where it could start having, uh, as it were, some purchase in the class struggle to try and change things, as in the 1890s with the development of the mass trade union movements and the first start of the big second international movements in Europe and so on, um, and eventually leading to the third international after the Russian Revolution. But also in the, um, the period we're in now, uh, we would have to be looking for some sort of recovery uh, like we had after 1945, with the recovery of the labor movement, which led to struggles in the 60s and 70s. And if you remember back, uh, there were a number of military quasi-fascist governments that still existed in Europe, in Portugal, in Greece, in Spain. Uh, these were overthrown in the 70s by the movements of, of the working class. So we could have a singular movement too, as we go into the next decade as a result. Um, so I'm taking a very long view here. I'm saying maybe we don't see much of a struggle, uh, except to defend what we've got now over the next 10 years of that environment. And maybe we have to wait for a new period, a new change, a new set of industries, a new set of workers who are willing to uh, and able to struggle against uh, uh, capital in all the various countries. Not a, a pleasant prospect, but I still remain confident that eventually there will be the opportunities to change this world. And uh, following on from that, do you see any ways that the system might use this pandemic to benefit itself? Well, clearly so. Um, we can see on a political level, for example, it's clear that people like Trump or Johnson are trying to use the national card uh, to argue that America comes first, Britain comes first against Europe, America comes first against everybody else, and that it's necessary to uh, uh, control and reduce the uh, influence of people who claim that there's a class struggle that's taking place within America, to continue to crush the opposition of the working people, both white and black in, in the US, and a move towards more autocratic governments that ignore even the basic principles of bourgeois democracy, law and order, the right to vote, the right to register to vote, all the, uh, the right to strike, all those things that could be reduced uh, in that environment. So that's one area. The other area is to claim, well, such as the expense of us sorting out this rather surprising pandemic, uh, we are now going to have to expect workers to pay more taxes, 
not to expect the same wages they had before, uh, to have less, better, worse conditions, uh, to privatize those sectors which are, uh, in their view, bloated, uh, the state sectors. So they're going to be that sort of campaign as well to reduce our basic living conditions, even if we come out of this uh, pandemic in the next year or so. And uh, one of the things we've seen uh, since the pandemic, as well as before, has been the, the ratcheting up of uh, what they call the new Cold War against uh, China. Now, in your blog, you do analyse China and its political economy uh, in a few areas. Could you talk about how you see the role of China as a player today in the global economy? How do you see growing economic competition between the United States and China? Well, one of the things I think viewers have to think about when it comes to China is that China appears to be a huge exception to what's happened in the so-called developing world or the global south. This is an economy, a massive populated country, which was as poor, if not poorer than India in the 1950s after the uh, revolution that took place in China, the overthrow of the landlords and capitalists as rec represented by Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist army who were driven off to the island of Formosa. You had an establishment of a government which nationalized the land and took over all the enterprises. So you have a planned collective economy, not necessarily democratic, even from the beginning, but certainly a planned collective economy. And what has been the result of planned collective enterprises in China, even if it was a poorer country compared to India. China has dramatically improved uh, in terms of level of national output, in the productivity of labor, of the expansion of employment. Uh, it's taken 800 million people out of poverty on World Bank standards. India has failed miserably to do that, uh, uh, basing itself upon the market economy and capitalism as a whole. So that China has dramatically changed uh, its situation, and not only has it changed it for its own people, but it's become a major, the manufacturing power in the world now, and increasingly, so worryingly for imperialism, beginning to develop its own technology to the point where it can compete with the West. So increasingly, it will be able to do things on its own much more than it was before when it had to rely to some extent after the 1970s on foreign investment and the introduction of a market economy to some extent. So China has, is an exception which uh, viewers have to think about. What's the reason for that? My view is it's because, it's because uh, the capitalist mode of production, market economy, the law of value does not operate in China sufficiently to cause uh, dis, uh, dis, disarray in the development of its economy. The state sector is very strong, the planning mechanism works, and it means that they can drive forward on investment and production and on employment in a planned way, unlike in the anarchic and uncontrolled way that happens in the West. So, but there is a conflict between the private sector, which is large in China, and the public sector and the state planning system, which is still to be resolved over the next year, uh, few years. But the main issue, is that now China is a major economic and technological power, and this threatens the whole basis of, of Western imperialism. Uh, and that is why the 21st century makes this issue the biggest one of all uh, when it comes to how 
the, the development of the capitalist mode of production is to take place and what it means uh, in terms of uh, the conflicts which could arise in the future. And returning back to the, the Great Depression in the 1930s, one of the things that uh, capitalism used to respond to that was Keynesianism. How do you see today in the, the so-called neoliberal era where uh, the power of national states to make uh, policy, to intervene in their, their government's economy, how, do you, how, do, how can the working class, what can we expect in, the, in this neoliberal era if, if Keynesianism isn't able to be used now like it was in the 1930s? Right, well, uh, there are two questions here, usually. First off, in a way, Keynesian is, is being used right now. We have a massive rise in government spending and big budget deficits for most of the major capitalist governments in order to try and keep the economy from collapsing and melting completely because of the pandemic lockdowns. This lockdown economy has forced the governments to spend huge amounts of money uh, on providing subsidies to wages, providing uh, support for businesses as well, particularly businesses, but also for wages. And that is really a massive government spending boost uh, to the economy. But because the economy is going down by, would have gone down by say 40% in, in one year, unbelievable, uh, because of the lockdowns, uh, the, all these spending has helped to reduce that to some extent, but on the whole, it will still mean a huge drop. Uh, the question really is whether that going forward from that, the solution to capitalism's problems is for governments to spend money either to give subsidies to the private sector, the capitalist sector, um, or to introduce uh, uh, spending programs, uh, infrastructure programs, um, investment programs financed by uh, government spending, even if it runs a deficit. Um, I would say that actually in the Great Depression, Although Roosevelt and the New Deal introduced works programs and other things, they didn't really introduce a Keynesian spending budget. They introduced directly programs to employ workers and to keep them off the dole to some extent, but unemployment was still very high during the 1930s. Um, so the Keynesians argue uh, either that we need a New Deal like we had in the Roosevelt, or if you come along and say, well, actually, it didn't actually do what the New Deal said it was going to do, it didn't get full employment and it didn't return people's wages until the war came, they say, well, in that case, that was because it wasn't applied enough. What we need now is a huge government spending program. My argument to that is I'm in favor of a government spending program that's gonna give people jobs, that's gonna uh, improve the investment and uh, infrastructure of an economy, but why should we give that money to the capitalist sector, which has totally failed uh, to achieve and has caused the crisis in the first place. Surely this is a very good case for saying that what we need is control of the commanding heights of the economy, the big banks. I sit in, I've worked in banks for 40 years and I just staggered that we still have a position where banks who have done so much damage to the world economy, every economy, through their reckless activities of speculation and so on, and their tax uh, law, uh, money laundering that they're engaged in most of the time to make their money, why these are not publicly owned and used as a service for the economy as a whole to provide uh, credit for businesses to grow and for households to 
you know, buying what they need when they can't do it through their own wages, instead of being get as big speculative hedge fund operations, which what they are. They need to be publicly owned and part of the plan. And the big multinationals, the big uh, companies that are making the huge profits that dominate uh, the world economy, they should be part of a plan for production for need, not for profit. And we need control of the technology companies, the pharmaceutical companies who've done nothing to protect us in this COVID. Um, the big uh, engineering companies should be part of a program of planning to take uh, the economy and societies forward coordinatedly around the world so that we can meet all the problems that we face now of the global warming, climate change, of the huge um, destruction of nature, which is going on through environmental degradation and so on, and uh, to end the situation where there are still billions of people in poverty and unemployed without any opportunity in the future around the world. Uh, Nothing. I mean, there was a UN report recently which said that um, poverty in, was in 19, the level of poverty in 1990 has not altered. 30 years later, the same proportion of people are in what can be considered by any standard in poverty as they were 30 years ago. So capitalism has failed. We need a completely different system. To say that the Keynesians have got the answer by simply spending a bit more money from the government while leaving the structure of capitalism untouched and actually uh, and hope that this will solve the problem seems to me wrong. And if you read my books, you can I'll give you in more detail on why it doesn't work, because it doesn't deliver what the, the Keynesians think it's going to deliver. And in, in the wake of uh, Donald Trump's uh, so-called America First policy, the growing uh, trade war with China, do you see this period as marking the end of neoliberal globalization? Well, I think so. I mean, clearly at the moment we have a sharp drop in world trade, which is one of the features. What do we mean by globalization? I mean that what happened in the early 1980s was that the major capitalist economies and the companies that were in them were suffering from a severe fall in their profitability. That had happened through the mid 1960s, through the 1970s, and into the slump of the early 1980s, which is very severe around the world, particularly in the manufacturing sector. Advanced capitalist uh, manufacturing sectors were decimated, uh, lots of people unemployed. The big multinationals answer to this was firstly to get the uh, trade unions smashed in their own countries, uh, to reduce the costs of the welfare state by privatization and cutting corporate tax and so on, but also to expand into the rest of the world where there are heaps and heaps of cheap labor that they hope to exploit by setting up factories and so on. So this globalization process was not, was an addition to the world trade that went on between imperialist countries and developing countries. Now they actually expanded their factories, their operations into these countries to set up uh, and to use the workforces there in the future very cheap. That's one of the basic features of that globalization period from the 1980s until uh, the Great Recession of 2008. And what we, we now realize, what's now happening is because of the slumps that have taken place and because of the squeeze on the growth in output and investment and profits for the big companies around the world, that it's this process of globalization has uh, reached an end, or at least a pause. 
it doesn't seem possible for it to be able to continue that way. So we're getting a drawing into national boundaries. Uh, politicians look to look after their own nations rather than expansion. All the international agreements like the World Trade Organization, like uh, NAFTA, like uh, European Union itself, all these regional levels, all these things are under tremendous pressure to break up again and look after everybody to look after themselves because of the change in the situation in terms of profits, trade, and investment abroad. So it appears that globalization has uh, slowed down. The data show that. So we've, we've come to a stop in terms of capital flows, in terms of trade growth. And uh, now it's like instead of a big cake expanding where everybody gets a bit of more share by, share, by cooperating to expand the cake, the cake is no longer growing or even shrinking. So people start fighting over trying to protect their share of it. And that's the situation we've entered now. And to what extent do you expect this economic crisis to culminate in the financial crisis in the UK as well as the, the Eurozone? Well, in the COVID crisis, I think there are three, we've had three stages. The pandemic led to the deaths of uh, thousands and thousands of people. Um, as soon as the pandemic was, it was clear that this COVID pandemic could not be controlled because health systems were inadequate, because there'd be no work done on trying to prevent these uh, pandemics coming. Then governments were forced <coughs> into these massive lockdowns so the first stage was a collapse in supply. Production stopped. Manufacturing firms closed down. All work closed down. People were sent home for work, except for essential workers, either to work from home if they could or not work at all. And so we had a massive reduction in production. And, and in the global south countries, where there isn't the sort of systems that we have uh, in the more advanced economies, people were just unemployed, had to go home, Migration took place and so on. So it was a massive drop in uh, production. So we had a supply shock, if you like. When you have a supply shock and it hits workers who no longer have any money to spend, apart from whatever the government gives them, and they're, they're not getting any uh, income to coming in, uh, then they stop spending. So they probably, and also they can't go out, so they can't go and spend and go out. So apart from having deliveries through online services and so on for the people who could afford it, uh, spending drops. So then you have a consumption shock. So we've had two things, production shock, then a consumption shock. But as this coronavirus continues to go on and on, and we go up and down with lockdowns, uh, there has not been a sufficient recovery. So the whole layer of small companies in particular, but also some larger ones who are in serious difficulty. They may have taken out a lot of loans. They may be taking out more with government help. So their debt is building up, but they're not getting any revenue. So the situation is that there could be a lot of bankruptcies in the next year coming through, which haven't had much yet, but we could get a lot more over the next year. And as a result, all the banks who have been lending their money because the government's told them to do so, uh, will find that they've got a load of bad debts on their books. So the banks will come under pressure financially again, uh, they're much stronger than they were in 2007, or at least we're so we're told. And so they supposedly can cope with a whole myriad of bad debts and bankruptcies taking place, not getting their loans paid. But we'll see. Uh, and in the, in the so-called emerging economies, their debt has risen dramatically. So a lot of corporations there are in trouble with lots of debt, 
and it's debt in dollars. Uh, so the dollars is strong compared to their own currencies, the Turkish Lira, South African Rand, the Indian rupee, and so on. They could be these companies could be in serious uh, difficulty because of their uh, foreign currency debt. So I think the third stage is a financial shock. That's still to come. Uh, whether it can be coped with, in addition to the production shock and the consumption shock, remains to be seen without us melting down into another slump. Uh, we shall see. But in 2020, if 20, early part of 2020 was the production shock, and the second part of 2020 is this spending or consumption shock, which hasn't recovered, 2021 could be the financial shock. <coughs> Um, there's some discussion going on at the moment uh, among the left on uh, the theory of uh, modern monetary theory. It's something our own party have uh, looked at um, recently, actually. Would you have <laughs> opinion on the, the MMT? Right. Well, I don't know what viewers know about modern monetary theory, but uh, I'll tell you why it's modern or not modern, depending on what you've seen. Monetary theory, the argument is that... Um, if we, uh, if governments or central banks uh, are in control of the money supply, um, Euro is controlled by the European Central Bank. They control the printing of it and the supply of that money, at least to begin with. The Bank of England controls the pound and it's only allowed to print pounds. The Federal Reserve Bank in the United States can, is the only agency allowed to print dollars. Nobody else can make dollars as counterfeit. You can't do that. So uh, whether it's in paper or whether it's uh, on credit cards or in bank accounts, the supply to begin with is under the control of uh, these central banks. Of course, if banks uh, decide they want to make a loan to somebody, a company or say, so they want to loan, say, a million dollars to a company. Uh, they, they issue a loan. It goes from the bank's accounts into the company's accounts. So the company's now puts the deposit of a million dollars into the bank. So it's back in the bank again. So in a way, the bank has created a million dollars. It's made a loan, and then there's a million dollars in the customer's account with maybe the same bank or another bank. So banks are creating money that way, but that money can only uh, appear if the central bank allows that uh, uh, process to take place, that the expansion of the money supply, if they want to avoid that, they can cut back on the money supply. But, so money is controlled by the banking system, starting with the central banks. Now, the argument of modern monetary theory is to do with how we're going to government spends money. Now, if the government wants to spend money, there are one way the normal way is that it raises taxes. It makes us and the businesses pay tax, mainly us, uh, and they get tax money, and then they use that tax money to carry out government services and pay government staff and whatever. But they could spend more than that. They could spend more than they actually get in tax revenue. So how can they get the difference? Well, the traditional way is to issue a government bond, uh, a national savings certificate, in our eyes, if we wanted to buy it, is a government bond. And it's saying, you buy this bond for £1,000, we'll pay you 2% interest each year for a year, 10 years, or whatever, however long the bond is going to, uh, is going to last. 
so we get your thousand pounds in addition to our tax revenue that we've got off you, and then we can spend more than we had before just with the tax revenue. We have to pay you interest. And of course, it's not us that's mainly doing this, it's banks and other institutions that are buying these bonds. So that's the traditional way of raising more government money to spend than they've got in tax revenues. Now, the modern monetary theorists say that's a complete waste of time, it's too restrictive, it leaves governments with lots of interest debt, and you shouldn't really worry about the debt. It doesn't matter if there's a deficit and a rise in debt, which is the traditional mainstream economists would say it does matter because it's got to be paid back. Modern monetary theory says, no, it doesn't. All you have to do if you want to, if a government wants to spend money is to get the central bank to print more money and give it to the government. And that's it. The government can then spend, it doesn't even need to raise a bond. It can just have more money. Uh, foolproof. So then the government can go out and spend on uh, bridges, roads, employing people, better services and welfare and so on, uh, getting people off the dole and giving them jobs through government programs and so on. And it can all be financed by just printing more money. Well, you might say, well, what's going to happen uh, if you print more money? Uh, won't there be uh, a huge mess? Won't there be inflation? So they say, well, it could be inflation, but only, uh, says the modern monetary theorists, if you don't spend the money productively. So you need to spend it on the right thing so it produces uh, income for people who can then pay taxes, and then the ta extra taxes will cover this printing of the money and so on. Well, there are so many things that I could say that raise doubts about this particular theory. The first thing to say is that people, ha people have to be sure that the money that they're getting is worth what it appears to be. If inflation rises, then you don't get many more, much more money. If you're, if you're the Turkish central bank and you print a load of money and you give it to, to companies to spend, uh, you've got a real problem because actually most of those companies are spending it on paying their dollar debt. So, and the dollar is strong, so it ends up actually reducing the value of the Turkish lira against the dollar. Then inflation picks up because all the Turks have to buy everything from abroad in dollars, and so they need more lira. So you get inflation as the lira goes down, there's a rise in prices. So there's no solution, uh, modern monetary theory, for small countries. Probably only a solution even to consider for the United States being the major economy with the strongest the currency and the most important currency. But even so, this is the fundamental point of view is that spending money by the government is no good if there's no change in the structure of the economy itself. Who is going to do the actual investing and producing? Is it going to be the government directly? Are they going to employ people directly? Are they going to invest directly? If so, the private sector is going to be crowded out. That's not going to be acceptable for them. But if it's going to be by giving money to the private sector to do things, who's, who's to be sure that the big multinationals are going to spend the money uh, they're getting extra from this process on productive employment and investment and not on speculation in the financial market uh, and so on when they think that the profitability of productive investment is low? If the productive investment profitability is low, then increasing the amount of spending, whether it's by printing money, as the monetary theory says, or traditional Keynesian methods by issuing bonds, won't solve the problem. And so MMT is really just a more 
extreme way of thinking about Keynesian government spending. The difference between that and traditional Keynesian views is that government spending solves everything. Uh, we don't need to touch the structure of the economy, but we also don't need to issue bonds, we can just print money. The argument uh, is I don't think that's possible if you don't change the structure of the capitalist economy so that you can actually control and develop the productive forces. And secondly, in countries outside the United States, printing more uh, Zambian currency or Zimbabwe currency will probably lead to massive inflation uh, rather than taking the economy forward. And if we- That's a short answer, not very short. I can assure you to answer it, you have to go and read some of the posts I've written and the papers are in, because modern monetary theory is now uh, a business uh, on its own. There are thousands and thousands of articles by academics arguing for and against. Uh, we will be sure to have a look at uh, some more of your postings on it. Just a, a question. If we have a recovery and the velocity of the money supply returns to pre-crisis levels, what does this mean for interest rates and inflation more broadly? Yes, well, um, inflation is a, a conundrum that's very difficult for people to grasp about why we have inflation. I mean, the obvious thing is, the usual thing is, well, if people uh, have more money than they can buy things with, then the prices of things rise and you get inflation. But that doesn't really answer the question because the question has to be, why are they not being more produced? And I would argue as a Marxist economist that the reason things are not being more produced is because there's a general tendency to reduce the amount of profit that you can get out of producing them over time. If that happens, then the profits that come to capitalists begin to decline relatively. They're still increasing, but compared to the amount of production, they'd be relatively smaller. And it also affects the wages of workers. So the two powers to increase uh, prices, namely capitalists buying things and workers buying things, are being forced downwards actually because of the production is, of commodities is growing faster than the value that's being produced uh, by workers and appropriated by capitalists in the form of profits. So you'd expect actually inflation to fall or to deflate it, and that's a general tendency. But that's bad news for capitalism. They prefer to have rising prices to some extent. Why? Because they want the market to be expanding and they want prices to be right. Prices are falling, they're going to lose money. So because they've invested in things that expand and then the prices tend to fall. So they, they want a mechanism by which prices are kept up. Uh, one of the ways to do it, apart from monopolies, but that doesn't apply to everybody, is for the central banks to boost money supply. So as we just discussed, so that it increases the amount of money that people are holding, um, either in wages or in uh, profits, and that will increase spending power. But that can't be controlled. So you've got a, uh, a situation where you can have too much money supply, and then it causes a rise in inflation, or too little money supply because there's generally a, a move towards lower and lower inflation and deflation. What will happen in the current environment is when you have a production and consumption shock, of course, if nothing's being spent and nothing's being produced, inflation drops really quite far. But as soon as spending picks up a bit and the production doesn't, then you start to get 
a bit of inflation, which has started to happen in the second half of this year. And because of the huge amount of money spending uh, or injection that's going on by federal banks, if we continue to have that process, I expect inflation to pick up again in the next couple of years. It's it dropped almost to uh, zero at the beginning of 2020 in COVID in the major economies, and now expected to rise back to two or three percent. Inflation is good for capitalism as long as it's not hyperinflation, but it's bad for workers, isn't it? It's obviously bad for workers because it means the wages we're getting are not being uh, not delivering the same sort of purchasing power that we require. If everyday electricity tariffs go up, if health insurance goes up, if uh, transport goes up, inflation rises, and we're not getting the wages to match it, then we're, our real incomes are falling. So inflation on the whole is bad news uh, for workers. It's not so bad news for capitalists. That's why the capitalists quite a lot everywhere are trying to get a bit of inflation. They want that. Uh, another one of the questions we've been sent in is how do you see the phenomenon of eco-fascism playing out where the middle classes of imperialist countries will support their consumption levels while being maintained at the expense of uh, the exploitation of the global south? Right. Well, I, I think it's an important question. The first thing to remember is that I don't think the ordinary working person in uh, countries like Britain or Ireland or the United States are eco-fascist and over-spending uh, and causing problems for the global south. The problem, whether it comes to climate change and carbon emissions, is the top 1%. They're the ones that use, are the biggest carbon emission uh, emitters in the world uh, amongst the populations of the global north. Their uh, global north on the whole is a relative to its population, is a huge emitter of global carbon. Uh, the multinationals and imperialism in the, in the global north are the causes of the environmental destruction in the global south as a result, and also for the exploitation of the workers there. But, uh, the, the fundamental point here is that imperialism is the problem here, both for climate change, inequality of wealth, exploitation of global south, that, and what do I mean by imperialism? I mean the big multinationals, the big banks that control the tentacles of the world in general and decide our lives, not the workers in the North. They are just as exploited. They're exploited by uh, their own capitalists. They might be on a slightly better standard of living than the majority of the global South, but that's not a product of them being part of an eco-fascist plot um, within the global North. And I think we have to remember that workers of the North and workers of the Global South have a lot more in common than uh, the, the than we, we would imagine than saying that we have in common with our own uh, nation. Uh, and that is the issue that we have to be clear about, that uh, the answer to the exploitation of the Global South is a change in the capitalist structure of those countries through the movements of the workers in those countries, but also through the overthrow and change of the structure in the imperialist countries. Because unless we change the imperialist stru uh, structures in the global north, in the you know, US and Europe and so on, there will continue to be a force that will exploit the global south and their own workers. And 
some of the the myths and illusions created around capitalism that it's it's the most efficient utilization of resources and, and all the rest of it how do you see this current crisis as uh, further showing uh, those myths and illusions for what they are yes indeed um, antonio Guterres is the un secretary general he recently made a very interesting speech about a month ago when he said uh, what the covid has shown is the rottenness of the capitalist society. I mean, this is the UN Secretary General. He didn't use the word capitalist, but that's what he announced. And he says, it shows the fiction and lies that we have an equal world. It shows the lie that everybody has in, been in the same boat in COVID. Well, we know that's not the case. People on the frontline workers have been taking the biggest risks with the lowest pay, uh, that it's the less well, less uh, healthy people, uh, poorer people who have taken the hit both in the infections and the deaths as a result, and is the poorest and the working people who have taken the hit economically as well, while the big uh, multinationals and the owners of those big tech companies are making thousands and thousands of dollars a second. I mean, the wealth of people like Jeff Bezos, of uh, the Facebook chairman and all the rest of them, they have made billions during the period of the COVID as a result of the expansion of the stock market and as a result of the expansion of their particular industries in their, uh, in their role. While billions of people are being forced into poverty as a result of COVID. So there is no equality, said Antonio Guterres. And he said, it, so it's a lie that uh, people are, are in the same boat, that they've been fairly treated that there is a possibility of inequality, that any step is being made on dealing with global warming, climate change and environmental destruction. He said, it's just not happening. And then he makes an appeal to the world uh, governments and say, it's time we got together and did something about it. Of course, there's no hope of the current set of government leaders in the major economies doing any such thing. There is no cooperation between the major governments at the moment um, to, deal with the tremendous problems of poverty, of debt in the global south, to deal with the situation for workers in the advanced capitalist countries as well. All they're interested in is trying to keep their share of the market going and to support their own capitalist businesses. Uh, if that means giving a bit of money to workers to stop them, uh, to keep them on board for work ahead, okay, but that's not their main intention. Their main intention is to preserve the capitalist system at the expense of other capitalist systems if it comes to that. Uh, so there's no cooperation and there's no attempt to reset the economy in a way which would deal with inequality, deal with climate change, deal with environmental destruction, deal with the need to end future crises and pandemics. Um, there is some discussion among uh, Marxists around where exactly we can pinpoint the origins of the of this crisis of capitalism for instance the i believe some people in the monthly review journal put it as a, a crisis in, originating from monopolization whereas you would put it squarely um as something that can be explained by marx's tendency the rate of profit to fall how do you feel that theory has has stood up in this crisis uh which theory the monopoly one or the Tendency to rate a profit to fall. Right. Well, I mean, first, 
Um, clearly, there are monopolies in capitalism. There are. By what we mean, there's not any real true monopoly. There's not a monopoly strictly means one company controls the whole market of the whole sector uh, that they're involved in. That really isn't the case. What you have is what you might call oligopolies, a, a, a small group of big companies that control the vast majority of the market. Take the tech market or the, you know, the fans, they call the five or six companies that control the tech and um, media market, tech media market. Uh, the banks similarly, maybe you know, 20, 30 banks in the world controlling basically most of the finance in the world. So we have oligopolies. There's no doubt about that. But the point is that oligopolies don't, are not um, stuck in stone. Uh, there's a process of competition and drive amongst capitalism, whether it's internationally or even nationally between companies to try and get market share. So the competitive drive of capitalism is still there to try and get more profits. And that means they will undermine oligopolies and monopolies if they can, either with new techniques, new sectors to sell to, and so on. So if you think 60 years ago, General Motors might have been the biggest company in the United States, and what General Motors did decided everything. That's a sort of monopoly in the car industry, or an oligopoly. Now, General Motors is nothing. It's not a decisive factor in the capitalist economy of the United States, where it's a whole series of different industries and different monopolies. If you go further back, it was the steel monopolies or maybe the rail monopolies. So my argument is that monopolies are not really deciding the issue of what happens to capitalism. What happens to capitalism is what happening to profits. That's the, the key guide for you to understand whether capitalism is doing well or doing badly and whether it's going to hit us harder or whether it's, we can get some gains out of it. If profitability is falling, then capitalism increasingly finds it more difficult to expand investment and production and employment. Now, the evidence shows, and that's not just me that has looked at the evidence, that over the last 150 years of capitalism, if we look at a world scale or in different countries, the profitability of capital, that means adding up all the profits of, in an economy and dividing it by all the uh, invested stock of machinery and raw materials that capitalists have got and the employment, and making a ratio of that, which is the rate of profit, that rate has over 150 years or so fallen. It's not anywhere near as high as it was in the 1850s. And it's not in a straight line. There are periods when it goes up, particularly after wars or after big slumps, but generally the pressure is down. That tells me two things. One, which we discussed first, Eugene, which was that it causes regular recurring crises when the profitability falls or hits profits in general. But also it tells you that capitalism is going nowhere. The capitalism is a system to expand, uh, uh, meet the social needs of, of uh, 7 billion people is not able to do that because the only, it will only expand if profits increase. And if profitability tends to fall over a period of time, long periods of time, decades maybe, then you get uh, crises, which means capitalism is not a system that can take us forward to solve all the issues of poverty that, that I've been talking about before. So uh, what it tells you is that you need some other system. You need a system where you plan, where uh, there is common ownership, where there is cooperation, where we use all the resources together in a planned way to meet the needs of people, not to meet the very small number of people 
who own the monopolies or, or the big companies. So the argument, that is the, the key argument, in my view, to understand capitalism. The argument that it's monopolies that are the problem has a certain issue, problem with it. Because if you're really saying this, that if we get rid of monopolies and we have competitive capitalism, so capitalism competes against each other, we break up the big companies, we break up Amazon, we break up uh, Facebook, we break up the big banks and make them small and let them compete against each other, then our problems are resolved because it's the problem of monopoly. No, it's not the problem of monopoly. It's the problem of capitalism and the fact that it is in contradiction between what we need and its need to make profits. And, uh, that contradiction lies at the essence of what is wrong with the current system. And how do you see uh, automation uh, ensuring profitability for capitalists uh, once workers are gradually replaced by machines and so on? Do you, do you think a lot of the worries about automation are well-founded or exaggerated? Uh, well, throughout the history of the industrial revolution of capitalism, what we've seen, if we go back to agricultural societies back in the early 18th century, we began to get the expansion of farming on a capitalist basis, farming for profit. And then it became, uh, in the towns, uh, you get the development of trade, so trading for profit. So we begin to get the basic uh, embryos of what capitalism is about. Uh, producing things for profit, trading and producing farm goods for profit. But then we have the Industrial Revolution, and the Industrial Revolution transforms things in a dramatic way. It's Engels' 200th anniversary of his birth this year. And he wrote a book, two books, but in particular the book um, The Condition of the Working Class in England. And we, we wrote that in 1844, and he describes how the dramatic development of machine production, of which he was a part because his family owned a cotton uh, mill in um, Manchester. He shows the tremendous movement towards away from just having lots of workers producing things, either in homes or in, even in bigger areas, to building huge great machines, cotton mills, other things, iron steel factories and so on. And that so machinery became the way in which capitalists expanded production why? Because by using machinery, they could reduce the amount of work costs of the workers that they had, and they could replace it with a big increase in production using machines. So a worker that could produce two pieces, two T-shirts a day was now given a machine and can produce 200 T-shirts a day. So you don't need so many workers as well, or even if you keep that one worker, you're now producing a lot more. So the process of capitalism led to the massive expansion of mechanization. And automation in the 21st century is just another form of that. It's expanding the mechanization. So the fundamental trend under capitalism has been to expand investment in machinery and robots, which is a form of machine, or a more advanced form of machine, relative to the amount of workers that we're using. And that increases the production, but, and, uh, but it should, if it was a proper, fair, humane system, reduce the hours of work for workers. But instead, what it means is lots of workers get unemployed. Um, and the situation means that you have an increased amount of what Marx and Engels called a reserve army of labor, extra workers that capitalists no longer need. 
uh, because they're using machines. But here is the contradiction. If they don't use workers, then the amount, and think about it this way, viewers, you can have as many machines as you like, but if, they, if you're not there, nobody's there to press the button, to maintain them, to turn the lights on, whatever, there's nothing produced. Machines do not produce value. They only produce value if human beings act with them to produce value, whether it's extra commodities or whether it's profits for the capitalists. So the capitalists cannot do without workers. They can reduce relative to the number that they've got, but they can't get rid of human labor power, at least not yet. So we're in a position where uh, less human labor power relative to machines is being used, a massive expansion of those machines means that costs rise for the capitalists relative to the amount of value they're actually getting because they're using less workers. So profitability begins to fall. That's the fundamental law of profitability. And there's a contradiction then between increased production using machines and a pressure downwards on the profitability of using that process. Now, with automation and robots, this is the argument. The argument is that we can move to a society where robots do everything for us. Uh, we don't need human labor. Uh, robots turn on the lights, they make other robots, they design new robots. There's no human labor involved whatsoever. That would be fantastic, don't you think? I think it would be. It means that we would presumably have so much, we'd have loads of time because we wouldn't have to work. Uh, robots would be doing everything. And so we could concentrate on more interesting things like, uh, well, I leave it for you to decide. Um, what you think is more interesting for human beings to do in your case. But you'd have that tremendous power to decide and create uh, on a creative level of what we might call work. We would move away from toil, having to work for a living, to moving to living for work, which would be the transformation of human beings in general. But, of course, uh, that is not possible. That's not possible to happen under capitalism because capitalism is going to allow everybody to go and do nothing. It won't mean a reduction in hours. In fact, the expansion of robots and machines have led to a general increase in hours because people are putting more hours in uh, to boost uh, capitalist profits. So, but you could get a situation where there's just machines. If there's just machines, there's no value being created. It's a completely different society. Machines are like slaves. It's like a slave society. Question then is who owns the machines? Is it owned by us all in common to provide the social needs of the world and reduce our hours? Or is it owned by a tiny elite who control all that, had their yard all life, and the rest of us are destitute? I would argue that before we ever get to that point, there will be a major class struggle about how that would operate. So uh, we're not at that point. That's the final point I make. It's quite a long answer, I'm sorry. But, the final point is that we're not at the position where robots make robots and make robots. We're in a position where there's increasing mechanization and we're now using more robots and artificial intelligence, which is increasing the ability to produce things and services without the use of human labor, which is good news. Uh, but we're way, way short of that replacing human labor power at the moment. I answer that always by saying, okay, so uh, a robot can solve a problem or it can make a computer like the uh, printing machines that we have now, robot printing and so on. But can it play tennis? Can it throw a ball in the air and hit the ball in? No, it can't do lots of things which human beings can still do. Maybe it will in the future, but we're a long way from what is called in the, in the language singularity, where robots are actually 
replace everything we can do and do it better. We haven't got there, possibly not in this century if at all. And as a, as a final question, is there a continue, if there is a continued fall in the rate of profit, is there an end point of profitability and what yeah. would it mean for the productive forces? Yeah, I was trying to work that out the other day. Um, that's this usual question, um, <clears throat> depending on what the profit level, let's take a profit level of 20%. So let's, let's say the world rate of profit is 20% and it's falling by, let's say, this is correct, by 1% a year. Uh, viewers can work that out, but it's going to go to zero in 20 years, if you see. So that's the end of end of the world, is it? The end of capitalism in 20 years because the profit rate goes from 20% to zero in 20 years. Uh, well, the answer, of course, it doesn't go down that fast. And secondly, the, the very nature of the booms and slumps in capitalism mean that there's periods of time when the profit rate goes up because we've got rid of old capital and, and labor, we've reduced capitalists have reduced costs, they've raised the profitability, perhaps at a new lower level of production for a while, but a higher rate of profit. And so we get a boost in the profitability, which could last 15, uh, 20 years. After World Wars, um, certainly after the Second World War, there was a big rise in the rate of profit, which lasted at least until the mid 1960s, 20 years. So if you look at actually the trajectory of the rate of profit on the world scale or in different countries, uh, and you do a little bit of a mathematical calculation that way, the rate of profit wouldn't fall to zero probably this century, if assuming that um, who knows what's going to happen in the next uh, eight decades ahead of us in terms of capitalism. So we don't have to look at it quite so as I, I might call linearly, it's not going to be straight down to zero, and that's the end of capitalism. What the rate of profit tells us of and the pressure of it's going down and the tendency to go down is the transitory nature of capitalism. It can't last forever. It doesn't solve the problems. It's going to find it more and more difficult to solve the, our needs and meet our needs because it only is interested, the, the system is interested in providing profits for a very small group of people who own the means of production. And they, they will operate uh, in a way to try and raise their profits, which actually make it impossible for the rest of us to, to achieve our social needs, not only on regular recurring basis in crises, but over the long term as well. Things can only uh, continue to get worse in terms of meeting social need because of the blockage of a profit-making system of production. And uh, Michael, I suppose, unfortunately, we're at the end of uh, this discussion here. Well, be any concluding remarks you'd like to make? No, it's been, uh, 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 I don't know the feedback, but I hope you'll find some feedback from your uh, viewers and people who participated today in the Zoominar. Um, we've got a lot of big problems ahead uh, for the labor movement. Uh, if and when we come out of this uh, pandemic, and the crisis it's caused, uh, we need to be thinking about how to reset the economy and to get the labor movement adopting the policies which can reset not only our local economy like Ireland, but also the world. We need to build, uh, first of all, we have to defend the rights that workers have had, their wages and conditions when they all, if, if and when they get back to work, not have them taken away by employers. We need to start a real campaign to build a proper health and protective systems to prevent future pandemics and health systems that protect us not to have a privatized domestic 
decimated, but to be fully funded. That's a struggle that has popular support amongst the mass of people in many countries. So the Labour movement should be leading that process. And we need to raise the idea that we need to change the actual structure of the capitalist economy so that we don't go into a further crisis and more pandemics and we can solve the big world issues ahead of us, not only of inequality, but of uh, climate change and environmental destruction. And we need to go forward in that way that in a in position of cooperation amongst the labor movement to avoid the serious dangers in the next few decades of uh, conflict between the imperialist powers. So there's a big task ahead of us. I probably won't be with you at the end, Eugene, uh, but I'm hoping that you youngsters I see now will be able to do that. Uh, don't worry, we will. Um, I suppose to paraphrase Che Guevara, um, it's not our fault if reality is Marxist. <laughs> uh, could have a quote that jumped out at me during your presentation. So once again, Michael, thanks very much for um, coming on tonight. All of us, I think, have learned an awful lot. Um, once again, for anybody looking to keep up with um, Michael, you can keep up uh, his blog, The Next Recession, at WordPress, as well as check out some of his books. I think he has two of them there in his... Um, the other way. There we go. <laughs> over there. And uh, once again, Michael, thank you very much for coming on, and thanks again to our audience. Thank you, everybody. Bye.